1: Oh, here we go, Mark. You know, Off it's again it's with just your... Mark being marketing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? The single largest mystery in terms of size is the Great Pyramids of Giza. For 3,800 years, they were the largest man-made structures on the planet, the single remaining intact wonder of the seven greatest in the world, built in Egypt and we've all heard countless explanations for their purpose. But have you ever coupled it with alchemy, the transmutation of base metals to gold? Could it be the pyramids at Giza are high-powered alchemical mega-machines designed as structure and a device, function and form, a pyramidal monument, and an astronomical time clock? Here to propose just that theory is author of The Land of Chem, Jeffrey Drum. here with me, Mystic Mark, on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and enjoy this episode with... Jeffrey Drum.
2: On that machine, you can get a piece of metal and this is what we do in the experiment and the limestone will produce an electric discharge, so there's no electricity coming out of this machine it's an electromagnetic energy field, however when you put a piece of copper or any piece of metal or even your finger next to the limestone, it'll shock you and it produces an electric discharge that comes out of the stone however, with the granite and basalt I believe it was the granite Yeah. so the red granite does not discharge at all which is a little bit counterintuitive because I expected the granite to produce a much stronger electric discharge however it's something called electromagnetic impedance and there's nothing inside of limestone that prevents the flow of the electromagnetic energy from passing through the stone however with the granite the red granite There is crystalline quartz and metal inside of granite, and the electromagnetic energy gets trapped inside of the stone, preventing that discharge into the copper wire, into your finger or whatever it might be. They did that intentionally, and all of the geology that was utilized in the construction of these monuments was selected very intentionally, and it's utilized in different parts of the structure for different reasons.
1: We are currently listening to Geodetic Transmissions by Revolution Void. The intro song is custom-made by Destiny Lab. You can find them on YouTube and Spotify. And our outro song is also custom-made by Luke Halizna. You can find him on the Free Music Archive or Patreon. Thank you for listening, folks. And I should say, in this episode, we do make mention of the video portion of the show. Jeffrey had a presentation for us with many different visuals but I will say it isn't necessary so if you can't watch the video don't worry you're not missing all that much you can still enjoy the conversation nonetheless but the visual aids are very helpful patreon.com or rockfin.com to see that video now enjoy the episode One last thing, big shout out to our newest Patreon supporters, Just Jess, Chandra, Shell, Dead World Radio, Zach M, Aaron C, Shannon Lynn Jones, and Lily D. I love you all, and I couldn't do the show without you.
2: Jeffrey Drum. I'm the author of a book called The Land of Chem. And the full title of the book is called An Initiation into Ancient Chemistry Through the Degrees of the Egyptian Pyramids. And it is about the connection between the Egyptian pyramids and their function as to the production of chemicals on an industrial scale. And myself, probably like a whole bunch of other people that got interested in Egypt at a young age, You know, I was watching Raiders of the Lost Ark with my dad, you know, sitting on the couch. Uh, That was one of the first movies that I saw when I was a kid and I kind of fell in love with the idea of traveling to Egypt and getting involved in all that kind of pseudo archeology span type stuff. Of course, I'm not professionally or academically qualified to consider myself an archeologist or anything like that. I'm just an amateur researcher who happened to perhaps stumble across something very, very interesting in my research uh, and travels to Egypt. So it was around like 2012, man, that I got interested in the Egyptian pyramids and all things esoteric. And it was kind of that time period where, quote unquote, the end of the Mayan calendar, which we all know was not the end of anything, but just the beginning of another new cycle. And it was kind of everyone was going through a spiritual reformation at that point. And myself included, when I got... Kind of interested in all that stuff specifically the alternative functions of the egyptian pyramids fast forward five years i was working for an it company at the time i'd gotten a huge commission check i had just broken up with a terrible ex-girlfriend and i was like you know fuck it i'm gonna go to egypt and do something that i've always wanted to do and i you know had a, lined up the research expedition with yusuf awian who If anybody's familiar with Egyptology and kind of the alternative circle regarding the function of the Egyptian pyramids and research about the proposed function of these structures, anybody knows about Yusuf. And I knew that if I went to Egypt, I wanted to work with him. So I was very fortunate. I reached out, we got in touch, planned a first research expedition for 2017. And that was my first time going to Egypt and I was actually working at the time with the guy and it's the, I forget the name of his actual YouTube channel, but he proposes that inside of the great pyramid, they was using electrolysis to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And then it was somehow converting that into electricity inside of the great pyramid. And I was working with that guy and researching his theory. And he knew that I was going to Egypt and we were going to try to put some connections together on site because he had never been himself between his theory and the great pyramid, long story short. That's one of my biggest objections to all of the theories surrounding the alternative function of the Egyptian pyramids, is that they focus specifically on the Great Pyramid and ignore all the rest of them, right? They propose this spectacular function for the Great Pyramid, but what are all the rest of them doing? So within my book and on my YouTube channel and all this kind of stuff, I've proposed a comprehensive overview of the function of all these structures, step pyramid red pyramid bent pyramid great pyramid central pyramid and there's also connections to the ancient passage chamber structures of ireland which trace back to the mound structures of north america and I'll also go into that in my book kind of the timeline of the progression of where all this stuff comes from and if you have any questions about that you know fire away and i do have a little presentation that kind of walks through my favorite proposals that I made within the book and some of my favorite episodes on my YouTube channel, some of the more recent stuff that I've put out. And, um, so whenever we're ready, I can fire that up too.
1: Yeah. And you know, I do have a couple of questions. So when we hear the word chem and the word chem right. The modern mind hears the word chem and immediately fills in that second suffix. Right. The with chemical, right. It right. right. But. <clears throat> Kemet is a place at least known in the ancient world where we would commonly refer to as Egypt. Right. And you have a background, which maybe you briefly mentioned there, but can we elaborate on your particular area of study, what you went to school for? Cause it connects to this idea that Kemet or chem maybe is the source word for what we now call chemistry.
2: Right. So I actually don't have any academic qualifications in chemistry or otherwise. So I have a, a a BS in psychology and a minor in Spanish, but I just happened to be, you know, fascinated by chemistry my entire life. And as I was investigating these structures in Egypt during my first trip in 2017, All the evidence that I started to see pointed me more in the direction of chemistry as opposed to electricity. And we know, even according to conventional archaeology, that Egypt was the birthplace of chemistry. They were the first ones to produce synthetic uh, chemicals. There's a pigment called Egyptian blue, which is the world's first synthetically produced pigment. And it was being massively produced on an industrial scale. And like you mentioned, so the title of my book is The Land of Chem, C H E M. And it's a play on words because. K-H-E-M is the etymology of the words alchemy and chemistry. That is where we get our modern words. The land of chem, K-H-E-M, refers to the black alluvial soil around the Nile River, but it also refers to, in my opinion, the Negredo or the calcination stage, the blackening stage of the alchemical process And it is from that blackened material that you extract the the vital compounds and the product that you're looking for. So I think it's also a reference to chemistry, leads us into the connections of alchemy in the Middle Ages, and then on to our modern um, industrial revolution, which led us to the production of chemicals on an industrial scale, which I believe is also directly connected to research on the Egyptian pyramids. Wow. Particularly the production of ammonia. I think they were looking into the red pyramid and happened to discover the same thing that I did, is that the Egyptians were using that structure to produce ammonia.
1: Right, right. And I have heard you say this before, that the, you know, Egyptian pyramid complex was somewhat of an ancient chemical manufacturing plant to some degree, but within the context of alchemy, which I seem to have been clarified there, like This is so much deeper, so much larger. We're talking about not just a material process of getting one thing to another. This is possibly something that affected people on a spiritual level, what was going on on these the Giza Plateau, correct?
2: Well, so you also have to remember that alchemy is just a veil, Hmm. right? So the spiritual interpretation of alchemy was simply intended to protect the practitioners thereof. Because in the Middle Ages, you would be burned at the stake very, very quickly for the practice of any sort of science or actually chemistry. But if you look at these alchemical texts, they're actually encoding legitimate chemical information, formula, you know, all this sort of stuff is actually related to the legitimate practice of chemistry. So they were really just hiding the discipline within this allegorical narrative of spiritual transformation but it is very legitimate chemistry that they're talking about Mm. that's that's the thing with all esoteric symbols is that there's an interpretation that is intended for the public comprehension but then only the initiates are able to understand the deeper meaning of these texts which when you read alchemical literature it really is referring you back to actual practical chemical knowledge that was being utilized at the time
1: wow yeah and and excuse me there because
2: Which is is a great segue to my first slide, by the way, Great, which is the esoteric interpretation of the scarab and the apis bull symbols from the dynastic Egyptian religion, which are directly related to the production of methane gas. So my proposition regarding the timeline of the Egyptian pyramids traces back to the civilization that once inhabited North America during the last ice age, and this is being prolifically researched by people like Graham, Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson, and they also proposed that there was a civilization that inhabited North America. I propose in my book that it's the survivors of this ancient cataclysm that left North America, traveled to Europe, Africa, South America, and Asia. And this is where we get the mythology of the creator gods that arrived to all of these places with science and technology intact. It is because of that ancient, relatively advanced civilization that inhabited North America, they had chemistry, they had the ability to build structures, they had knowledge of physics and astronomy and all of these things, and they brought all of that with them to these new areas as they reestablished their civilization They implemented their knowledge, the cumulative knowledge of this ancient civilization in these structures to the benefit of the civilization as they reestablished themselves in these new areas. And this was a post-cataclysmic civilization. And people always ask, well, why did they build the pyramids so big? And, you know, they've lasted forever and they're essentially indestructible. Well, this is one of the reasons is they wanted to make sure that their work would last forever and it couldn't be destroyed again, as everything was
1: during the destruction of the North American continent at the end of the last ice age. Now I see what we got here on the first slide. This is a ferrous sulfate, a iron sulfate. We see a cross on its side with a sort of alchemical circle with two dots and a pyramid. And it says the land of Chem. It's a real sharp logo.
2: So shameless plug and shout out to my new logo. Shout out Adam Arrington for helping me design this new logo. So this is the brand new logo for the Land of Chem. It's the central pyramid of Giza with the alchemical symbol for hydrochloric acid, which is the chemical that I proposed was being produced inside of that structure. Currently wearing the shirt right now. I love these in the violet exclusive. Of course, the title for the book, Land of Chem, my website is thelandofchem.com, Instagram at thelandofchem and YouTube, thelandofchem, C-H-E-M. All right, so this is my most recent episode on my YouTube channel, and it um, discusses the proposition that there is an esoteric interpretation to the scarab and bull symbols that are directly related to the industrial-scale production of methane inside of the Step Pyramid. This is a symbol that has been incorporated within the dynastic Egyptian religion as a solar symbol, right? It represents the rising and setting of the sun every day, and the god Kepri, as represented by the scarab, pushes the sun across the sky every day. And to me, this interpretation made absolutely no sense, even as a child when I was studying Egypt the the fact that they have what is essentially a desert cockroach pushing a ball of feces around the desert floor somehow representing the glorious golden sun it, it never really resonated to me as being true however if you reinterpret this symbol from the perspective of ancient chemistry the first step in the process of producing methane gas is harvesting cattle manure because it provides the bacteria that basically digests the raw materials in your slurry to create that methane gas. And that is exactly what I proposed was occurring inside of the Steppe Pyramid of Saqqara. And that also direct, directly relates to the deification of cattle throughout the ancient world. You see that all of the ancient religions across the planet, basically deify cows. They are gods to those civilizations. And of course, there is an astrological interpretation to that symbolism, right? The constellation Taurus, but that's again, a superficial interpretation that was intended for public consumption. It's an esoteric symbol. And with all of these symbols, there's always a deeper interpretation that's intended for the initiates of whatever that particular discipline might be in this case, being ancient chemistry.
1: Wow so the the cows giving off methane, the methane being a part of the dung in the beetle's process, what what were what are you proposing that this temple is actually going on? like a a process of harnessing the methane to create energy to create heat. What's your initial suspicion? And please don't let me jump ahead if that is going to be covered in, further on.
2: Oh, yeah. No, you're good. So, basically, there's a northern temple in the front of this structure, and I believe in those temples, they're either intended for production of the raw material that was being introduced into the structure, or for harvesting of the product and collection of the product. And one of the first things that I saw when I was in Egypt, we visited a site called Abu Sir, and there's this huge red quartzite collection bowl and a conduit coming out from underneath the floor of the temple adjacent the pyramid and you could literally see that there was a fluid pouring out of that conduit into the collection bowl and you don't need that when you're right next to the nile river for collection of water you just go up to the river and collect the water you don't need this elaborate mechanism for the collection of whatever the fluid was and it's very clear that whatever they were collecting was fairly important because of the selection of the material used for the construction, right? You don't get exotic red quartzite from hundreds and hundreds of miles away and carve these elaborate collection bowls just to collect water. You can do very simple water channels to do that. So long story short, I was proposing that the chemical being produced in the adjacent pyramid was flowing underneath the temple and being collected there on site. And that's kind of what led me into investigating these pyramids from the perspective of chemistry. And then I went inside the Red Pyramid, saw all of the chemical staining and the smell of ammonia, which I'll get to later in the presentation. And everybody for decades and decades and decades has proposed that it's a result of the bats. But finally, we got a chemical analysis done of some samples that were taken from inside of the Red Pyramid. And this was done by a research organization called the ACIDA Project. And they took samples of this material back in 2010. I finally got in touch with them and it turns out that the black material is strontium and has absolutely nothing to do with bass whatsoever. So I finally put that incredibly superficial explanation for all of the smell and the staining. Of course they go, oh, it's a bass, nothing to see here, you know? But no, we, there was chemical analysis taken of that material. And it was finally proven that it has nothing to do with bass. So one of the other videos that I put out in regard to the Step Pyramid of Saqqara, this is an industrial scale manufacturing p- complex. And here on the Western side of the structure, there's a massive storage silo that was intended for the storage of grain and grain was also incorporated into the slurry. So you basically mix water, agricultural scrap material, and about 10% cattle manure into a, a fluid slurry here in the Northern Temple. It was then introduced into the structure, and then the methane rises out. And the methane could have been used, well, my first proposition is that it was used for metallurgy. Metallurgy was huge in the ancient world, and if you had the ability to produce high-temperature flames using methane, that also leads directly to the imagery of the sacred flame in all of these ancient civilizations. And this is usually represented by a blue flame, which is also the color of the methane. So, nonetheless, there's a lot of stuff here at the Step Pyramid which was actually done by the dynastic Egyptians. And of course, there's been reconstruction of these sites over all the ages and repurposing of the structures. Um, but that is my proposition for the Step pyramid of Saqqara, that it was used to produce methane gas. Of course, that methane being used for metallurgy, but then also for like normal domestic applications. The ancient Chinese were harvesting methane from natural gas seeps and transporting it in bamboo pipelines to the, you know, city centers where they were using it for heating and lighting and cooking and boiling water. Of course, all of those applications certainly would have been relevant to the dynastic Egyptians. And that's what I believe the methane was being used for. But then also for industrial purposes, methane is also the primary reactant in the production of ammonia and that is the next reaction in the sequence is within the red pyramid of dashur which i have up here and these are some old original photos from inside of the red pyramid showing all of the staining covered the walls and you can see the staining patterns inside of the structure that are indications of the fluid dynamics that were occurring and all of this black staining again everybody has has explanation has always been that it's because of the bats and that there was a huge colony of bats that lived inside the structure and that's also what produces the smell of ammonia. Well, I've been in structures in Egypt where there are bats. There is no smell of ammonia and there is bat feces all over the floor and you can clearly tell that bats are living in the structure. There's, you can see here in these old pictures, there's no bat feces in the floor. There's no indication that bats or a large colony of bats were ever in this structure. And the Acidic project took a chemical analysis of this material and it's strontium, which is a very, very unusual material, um, until you start to look into it and determine why that strontium is actually in there. And I have an explanation for why that's the case also.
1: Yeah, please do tell us. And strontium, what is that generally used for in like modern day chemical applications? Is that like something that's generally used often or is it a rarer element? Well, so this is the area in the
2: structure where those samples were taken from. This is the upper vault of the secondary air reformer. And so strontium is very similar to calcium and limestone is calcium carbonate. Well, in special types of limestone, strontium can substitute the calcium in the limestone matrix. So this is regular limestone where the strontium has actually just replaced the calcium and these are extrusions of strontium that are coming out of the stone. As a result of the dynamic pressure changes inside of the structure. Because up in this upper vault, there were fluctuations between high and low pressure systems. And that's what caused the extrusions of the strontium to come out of the stone. However, there's also some other very, very unusual elements found in these samples. There was high quality and I have a full video about this on my YouTube channel. And as with all of these things that I'm discussing, there's, there's specific episodes on my YouTube channel. And so strontium being the main component of the chemical analysis, but there's also all of these exotic semi-radioactive elements. You see thorium, uranium, et cetera, et cetera. There's also antimony, lead, cobalt, nickel, copper, zinc, chromium, all of these very unusual elements. And I have an explanation for that, that I haven't quite covered yet. But again, the main component is strontium that's coming out of the stone. It's a natural part of the stone. But again, it's coming out of the stone due to dynamic pressure changes inside of the structure. Mm. has nothing to do with bats,
1: Right. And that second degree of of whatever, you know, elements here is CU. What does that initial stand for? Which element? Uh, So that's copper. Copper. Okay. So the higher there's strontium and a majority strontium and then the larger percentage compared to the rest is copper it seems but wow yeah that is really strange so yeah i didn't quite understand what you're saying until you laid it out like that that the the elements are being expressed from the stone because of whatever process is happening in this chamber that's really compelling wow
2: which is as close to we can get as conclusive evidence i don't like to say it's proof but it's it's evidence for an industrial process occurring inside of the structure. Because again, everybody's simple explanation has been bats. Nothing to see here, move along. Everybody goes in and out of the structure in five minutes because it smells very, very strongly of ammonia inside of that structure. And the smell of ammonia, and I've been to Egypt three times, in 2017, 2020, and 2021, then I'm going back later this year, and the smell of ammonia gets stronger and stronger every time, and it emanates from the final synthesis chamber. It actually comes up out of the pit, which was the drainage portion of that structure. So it's, it's just, the ammonia is still coming out, and it's a very pure, chemical ammonia smell it's not it doesn't smell like urine right urine has a very distinct organic smell there's other compounds in it that would cause it to rot and ferment and it would smell terrible in there if it was actual bat urine but it doesn't it's very very pure ammonia smell and it's It's difficult to stay inside that structure for a long time just because the smell is so strong, but I've spent quite some time in there, you know, documenting the structure, looking at everything, because there's some very anomalous details about that structure that haven't been explained other than what I'm doing. Wow. Yeah, very interesting, man. So I'm kind of going through the chapters in the book. So each degree, the book itself is a fictional story of a young man's initiation into an ancient secret society that was responsible for the construction and operation of the Egyptian pyramids. And I chose to write this as a fictional story because I don't have any academic qualifications and it's much more exciting to read. But within the, the narrative of the land of Chem, there's basically a monologue that gives an explanation for exactly how all of these structures operate. And the third degree is the bent pyramid. So they were producing methane within the step pyramid, The methane was being converted into ammonia in the red pyramid, and then the ammonia was being converted into the bent pyramid, which if you could throw a rock far enough from the red pyramid, you could hit the bent pyramid. It's right next to it. And that is also the case with our modern industrial process is that you have your ammonia production facility, and then you have your solid Fertilizer or manufacturing facility, whether it's urea or ammonium bicarbonate. Originally in the book, I proposed that it's ammonium bicarbonate, but the process gets more sophisticated. I'm writing a second book. So the first book again is called an initiation for a reason because it's the most simple details of the operation of this structure. And in the second book, I cover much more stuff. We'll get into a little bit of that. I'll give you a preview of what's in the second book at the end of the presentation. But this is 2020. This is Yusuf and I heading toward the bed pyramid. This is my first time going inside the structure. I was so pumped to finally get a chance to go inside this thing. It's been closed to the public for decades and decades, and we were one of the first people to get a chance to go inside the structure. And this is the primary reaction chamber of the bed pyramid. Within this chamber, I propose that carbon dioxide was being percolated up through the ammonia solution to produce solid ammonium bicarbonate, and multiple researchers have found elevated levels of carbon dioxide inside of this structure. There's a Russian research team, so I've worked with this group called the Acida Project, and they're this Russian research group that have been researching the Egyptian pyramids and going and taking measurements and documentation and doing this chemical analysis, and they have a very prolific website and YouTube channel. But I've also been in contact, but I found this other Russian research article that indicated that the ACIDA project had taken these samples. And I translated this Russian research article and they proposed that the lower chamber system of the BEP pyramid was a furnace for the production of carbon dioxide, Well, I also proposed that carbon dioxide was being utilized within this structure, but it was for the production of ammonium bicarbonate. So there's, there's some reason there's an elevated level of carbon dioxide in this structure and it's an empty structure. But the bed pyramid also has very, very good ventilation and airflow inside of the structure. For whatever reason, you can feel very strong drafts inside of that structure, as opposed to any of the other pyramids. In the red pyramid, they actually have air shafts, modern air shafts leading in there in an attempt to ventilate that final synthesis chamber. They're trying to get the smell of ammonia out of there. Wow. And this is just kind of a depiction of the chemical reaction that I proposed was occurring inside of the Bent Pyramid's primary reaction chamber. And there is a significant amount of erosion inside of the primary reaction chamber of this structure, which is pretty unusual, right? Why is there erosion inside of one of these chambers if it was a burial that's been closed for thousands of years? So next up is Forced the Great Pyramid of Giza. This is an awesome picture that was taken from Yusuf's balcony. So we went over there to eat dinner one night and we were just hanging out and they do a sound and light show every night at Giza so you get to watch the Great Pyramid change colors. It's a truly amazing experience to go to Egypt feel very very fortunate to have done that. but long story short, I also propose that the Great Pyramid of Giza was designed to produce a dilute solution of hyd- sulfuric acid rather hydrochloric acid being produced in the central pyramid. And I have videos about all this stuff with detailed explanation on my YouTube channel, and of course, also in the book, I go into great
1: detail about how these structures operated. And if you have any questions, let me know. I'm fascinated. I have plenty of questions, but I really want to see where this goes further. Cause I feel like my questions about chemistry are just going to be so basic that it might bore the people who know more than me. So let's get right past that and, and get into the heart of this.
2: Well, this, this is very, very basic chemistry and it's very basic physics that were involved in the operation of these structures. And that's one of the biggest beefs I have about kind of the alternative researchers as they propose all this lost ancient high technology. Well, this wasn't a high tech civilization. There's nothing about these structures that I would consider high technology. It is very, very simple, basic physics and knowledge of how the natural world operated And they harnessed all of this power to produce miraculous chemical reactions. If you understand simple physics, you can do very, very powerful things. And that's also how they lifted the stones and they did all this stuff. It's, it's knowledge of physics and hydraulics. And I have a video coming up on my channel about the construction of the pyramids. And they did that using knowledge of hydraulics and fluid dynamics. And they basically floated the stones on water all the way to the site. And then they got them up there using water.
1: Wow. So. I mean that, that's, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. Maybe not right now, cause I don't want to break up the conversation from the presentation, but
2: I got, a, I got a hot video coming out this weekend, man. Okay. It's, okay. It's, okay. It's well, we... this, this really isn't my, my discipline. I wasn't, I mean, I'm interested in how they were built, but you know, I, I focus on what was going on on the inside. So in this particular episode, I'm just going to share some research. I've had a lot of requests for people asking. Well, what do you think? How, how are they built? So I found two very similar theories that both involve knowledge of hydraulics and fluid dynamics to flow the stones into place using water. And it was very, very easy to do. It doesn't require heavy lifting or people dragging stones. And it's from the vein of work smarter and not harder. This is a civilization that the Nile River was the lifeblood of that civilization. Water was absolutely everything to this ancient civilization. And of course, they would have known how to use it to move stones around and to make work easier. People often significantly underestimate the knowledge of ancient stonemasons and the ingenuity of things like pulleys and levers and these are things that are very, very basic physics that if you have enough knowledge about how these things work, you can you can move some pretty heavy stuff and lift some very, very big things.
1: And the, the evidence of water erosion around the pyramids is often used to date them to very ancient times. I wonder maybe if it's just a byproduct of, you know, the process of building it.
2: Yeah, so there's a, there's a big discussion to have there, you know, regarding the dating of the Egyptian pyramids, like you said, the weathering of the Giza plateau, so the great pyramid of Giza. And my proposition is that this structure was designed to produce a dilute solution of sulfuric acid. And I apologize if I said that before, I think that was in the previous recording, but nonetheless, you know, this is just a gif of the modern industrial process for the manufacture of sulfuric acid. So if you imagine that this component here is the king's chamber this component here is your antechamber this is your grand gallery and this down here your collection tank would be your queen's chamber and if we go back let's see here trying to make sure i can see everything i'm doing here and if we go back so this would be again your furnace for the production of sulfur oxides your antechamber well, I won't say what that is cause that's getting into the second book, but any of you that were paying attention to that animation and know anything about chemistry will know what the antechamber is for. Your grand gallery is for the collection and the production of the product here. And then the queen's chamber is your extraction chamber. And pretty much everyone that has been researching the great pyramid has proposed that the Southern or the rather the subterranean chamber is a water pump. A lot of people suggest that the entire structure is a water pump, which I very, very highly disagree with, but the subterranean chamber was designed to pump water from the subterranean chamber up through the so-called well shaft mm. into the grand gallery in Queens chamber. So this entire area here was completely filled with water.
1: Right. And maybe at times certain uh, mixtures of chemicals, right? I mean, not just water. Is that what you're suggesting here is that they would be, you know, collecting certain materials through this, you know, refinement process that the pyramid was going through.
2: Yeah. So the, basically this is, this structure was producing sulfuric acid. And all of the, so I also did a video on my uh, YouTube channel about geopolymer and chemical sealants. And there's a lot of indication that there were sealers used inside of these chambers that were intended to protect and seal these chambers from the corrosive effects of the acidic solutions that were being produced inside of them. I also made a video about, of course, the geopolymer theory, which suggests that some of the stones used across the ancient world are actually artificial stones that were made using chemistry. Wow. So, which I highly agree with, particularly in regard to the andesite and the stones used in South America and also in India. There's a very, very interesting video that I put in my video on Geopolymer of one of the Indian caretakers at the Kailasa Temple. And he's describing the sacred ancient combination, the lost knowledge of the chemical composition that was used to create the artificial stone. The geopolymer that was used
1: to build Kailasa Temple. Wow, so sulfuric acid possibly would be helping create this geopolymer somehow and then they would take that mixture and set it and in a mold and then over time it would harden into this extremely dense stone that seems to be like so perfectly fit together that you can't even slip a piece of paper in between individual stones.
2: So always think metallurgy Mm. when it comes to the ancient world, the production of metals was the most important thing that they were doing, particularly the rendering of gold and you can't, so some of the samples of the gold found in South America are like 99.999% pure, and it's impossible to get that purity of gold by smelting process. You have to use chemical refinement to produce high quality, very high purity gold. And you use that you do that using acids and also acids are incredibly useful for the production of all sorts of other industrial compounds.
1: Well, maybe this is sort of, again, you know, this is a lot of out of my range, but forgive me for this speculation, but would it be possible that they're using acid to carve what they've carved into the stones or is that just that's a little that's unnecessary because it seems like, you know, they're going out of their way to make sure this acid isn't, you know, eating away at this stone that comprises the pyramid. Maybe they would use it to create the facial features of the Sphinx, right? They could dissolve it and corrode it with acid and make the process a lot quicker than just chiseling it away.
2: Right. So the way acid will work on stone is it's not so site specific Mm -hmm. where you could use it in that manner to be able to apply it to, to, to be able to control it, to, to be able to carve stone. So again, it, and this goes back to the ancient stonemasons, people that were raised from birth in the craft of carving and moving stone. And this was not only an art, but a lifestyle for these individuals. And they were incredibly talented and gifted at that. So I think they were, again, people ask how they carved the ancient stone, I mean, if you're raised from birth to carve stone, it, it gets pretty easy to do. Not easy, but they have the knowledge of how to do it. So again, acid doesn't really work in a controllable manner where I think it could be implemented for the carving of stone. But it's, it's certainly tons of other applications
1: for it. Okay, and again, I I'm just throwing things out there and seeing what sticks. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I
2: love the conversation, <laughs> man. I'm
1: I'm incredibly
2: fascinated by propositions about the ancient world because mm. I think there's there is some sort of misinterpretation of what our ancient history is like. I don't think we have the full story, particularly where we go back to prior to 10,000 BC, again, you see things like Gobekli Tepe and all of these discoveries that keep pushing the timeline back further and further. And there, there clearly was a civilization that predated the conventional all civilization starts at 3000 BC and there's nothing that came before it except for cavemen and farmers, but I very much disagree with that.
1: Well, and, and to consider that this was making gold or a part of a process to create this really high, high percentage of gold that would explain why there's all these robbers that come around to these sites, you know, maybe they've heard legends of what these places were actually about. And we're like, Hey, let's go see if there's any gold still kicking around and i've also heard maybe this is right or wrong please correct me that there was a point in time where the pyramids were covered in gold or had the appearance of you know shining from some sort of material that was like glazed over the the you know outsides of it yeah so the exterior of the
2: structures were originally covered well particularly in regard to the great pyramid with with white torah limestone and they certainly would have been incredibly brilliant to look at in the middle of the day. Even at night, the moon shining on these things, the casing stones would have been absolutely brilliant. I mean, it would be like looking at the, the Washington Monument or something like that at night where it was just shining in the moonlight. So they would have been incredibly amazing to look at. And there is some speculation about the capstone of the Great Pyramid, the Pyramidia at the top, possibly having been made from electrum which is an amalgam of gold and silver. But I also, I disagree with that. I don't think there was ever a capstone on the Great Pyramid. And there's a reason for that. That's coming up that I explained in the second, the second book in the series, but there's a reason the Great Pyramid doesn't have a pinnacle and the central pyramid does.
1: Wow. Okay. And it's clear that you have all of this planned out in a successive fashion. And I, I, I don't want to get ahead of it because I respect the fact that it's a fictional work. And I think there's a lot of merit to doing it that way. You know, we've had past guests on the show who are also fiction writers who say this is the best way to give a person morsels of truth through fiction. And my question to you is as a a fiction r- researcher or, you know, uh, as a fictional writer and a researcher who's not associated with any you know, traditional academic group or or study, does that give you possibly more leeway in getting around these sites? Or, you know, obviously it lends to your more open-minded take to conundrum, but is it possible that you're kind of flying under the radar where maybe folks like Robert Schock or Graham Hancock, you know, get a little bit more attention on them when they touch down? Yeah. So the
2: first thing, there's a great quote by Rudyard Kipling that says, if history were told in the form of stories, then it would never be forgotten. And that's what we see with all of the mythology across the ancient world. It was told as a story so that people would remember it and they would be compelling and interesting instead of just some boring history lesson. And I'm not an academically qualified researcher. My original intention was to write a research paper. And in the development of my theory, after I had everything done, the universe works in mysterious ways. And somehow my father ended up going to see a presentation on the seven principles of hermetic philosophy. My dad was a retired army colonel, and I never thought he would go to see something like this. Turns out the guy giving the presentation was a retired PhD in chemical engineering, master's level professor, and he had actually had multiple patents in chemical engineering, both internationally and domestically. So we linked up and he basically treated me as a grad student and literally ripped my theory to shreds and had me build it back, scrap by scrap, piece by piece, and explain every single tiny little detail and have legitimate academic justification for everything that I was saying. And at the end of the day, his name is in the forward to my book because had I not worked with him, I never would have the confidence in my theory to and, do this.
1: And well, that explains. I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. On Instagram. I'm, I'm followed by tons
2: of chemical engineers, physicists, and people like this that are legitimately interested in my theory because it's it is the most academically accurate implementation of physics and chemistry within these structures there's legitimate science that goes into the operation of these structures and all of that's written out in the book but it's just told in a more entertaining format where you know it's this exciting initiation into this ancient mystery in mystery school but it also contains all the lessons of exactly how these things operated yeah man also to, to go back to your comment about getting around the giza plateau and all these sites Dude, I've been in places that people do not get to go into. And I'm incredibly fortunate to be working with Yusuf just because he is a legacy tour guide in Egypt. His father was one of the premier tour guides during the eighties and nineties. He worked with representatives from the American government and was like the tour guide in Egypt. And now his son Yusuf is doing tours on his own. So Yusuf can get us into everything. And, you know, there's these other researchers that go around, you know, with the Indiana Joes, they put the hat on and the whip and they're going around and they're blah, 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 this, that, and the other in the sites and trying to do research. Well, dude, that does not fly in Egypt. And unless you're following the narrative and to even get permission to do research in Egypt is basically impossible. Only people from Egypt and licensed, you know, the Egyptologists working for the government of Egypt are the only people that are doing research on the Egyptian pyramids. It's very difficult to get academically sanctioned research done. That being said, look at the Asita project, which just happened to be able to go inside one of these things, scrape off some samples and do chemical analysis. And they've done more for better understanding these structures than Egyptology has ever done in terms of actually understanding what was going on inside these structures because they're not beholden to academia and neither am i you know and I, I think of course you can also use some fictional license too to talk about things that i can't necessarily prove i'll never be able to conclusively quote unquote prove my theory that being said in my most recent episode there's a software called Comsol, and it's multi-physics modeling software and in this software you can demonstrate fluid dynamics and compression, compression and heat changes and all of these sort of things within 3D CAD models. So there's certainly a way where you could upload a 3D CAD model of one of these reaction chambers into a software of this nature, build it out of limestone in the modeling structure, do the fluid dynamic modeling and see if temperature and pressure changes happen. And you can insert different chemicals in. And this is in my most recent episode as well, where I kind of explained that that's the ultimate goal for my theory, because you can do that separate of academia, and that would be the closest that anyone could ever come to quote unquote, proving any of this stuff. Because even if you did, the narrative is never going to change. The books are already written, right? And so regardless of any proof that ever comes out about an alternative function for these structures it's not gonna change the history, nor do I really want to. It's just something that I'm very passionate about. And you know, I'm certainly not trying to take anything away from the narrative of dynastic Egypt either, right? The Pharaohs and all of this, it's a very, very rich history and it makes Egypt what it is today. I just think that there's a civilization that, not even a different civilization, but just the pre-dynastic Egyptian civilization. And there's tons of evidence that this does exist. If you look at the pottery, the most ancient pottery in Egypt is the most sophisticated. Mm. <laughs> and that is an indication that these items are heirlooms from a pre existing culture. Right. And if you look at artifacts like the, the Steel of Menes, the Narmer Palette, it talks about the reunification of Upper and Lower Egypt, suggesting that there was an original civilization where that was together. They had separated into upper and lower Egypt and they were reunified at one point. And even the the conventional dynastic Egyptian religion talks about the civilization going back much further to the time of the Zep Tepi, the time of the ancient gods. So there's there's certainly evidence that there was a pre-dynastic Egyptian civilization that I proposed built these things.
1: Wow, man. Yeah. And <laughs> I kind of got way off track. No, 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 it's fine. And I just, I was waiting in the wings to compliment you because <laughs> I kind of, I misspoke at the beginning of our conversation and assumed that like, you know, an academic, a pedigree, but hey, you kind of do and you just explained it. And I think it shows how, you know, much rigor, scientific rigor that you put into your work. And, you know, I'm sure that this gentleman who is, you know, has that academic reputation definitely helped a lot, but you know, you don't need that. And especially considering, you know, you don't need the, 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 I should clarify, you don't need the, the permission of some, you know, stiffs in some university to make a breakthrough. And, and we see that, you know, this is my opinion, not Jeffrey Drum's. We see that in the Egyptologists sort of modus operandi of, you know, what seems like political motivation rather than actual scientific investigation or even historical investigation. They have a very political motive to keep the story of Egypt as they tell it the way it is. And that to me explains why they're so tight lipped and closed about who gets to see what over there.
2: Oh, yeah. So I can tell you something pretty interesting about traveling to Egypt. When you go to Egypt, you have to have a licensed. Egyptologist guide with you at all of the sites. So basically I hire Yusuf and he hires all the licensed guys and the security and the transportation and all that stuff because Yusuf gets us into all the private access stuff. He knows everybody. He's a coordinator, takes us out to dinner, coordinates the meals and the transportation and all that stuff. Plus he's a super amazing guy to work with. And it's just an absolute pleasure to go over there and be able to work with him and do this kind of stuff. But the licensed Egyptologist guides are not allowed to go inside the structures. Because there are so many anomalous, inexplicable details inside of those things that if people start asking questions when they go inside there, there's absolutely no way for them to explain it. Right. And as we're doing this, the guides are asking questions and they're talking in Arabic. And he's like, you know, he thinks it's bullshit too. And everybody thinks that. The conventional narrative about these structures is somewhat off, and, you know, the more that those guys, the more time they spend with Yusuf, the more they start coming around. And we toured with this old guy, Professor Mohammed, a couple of years ago, and he's a guy who's in his 60s or 70s who was trained as a classical professor in Egyptology, a you know, guy who lives his life according to the dynastic Egyptians, but… In all of our conversations, he's like, dude, there has to be something more to these structures. And I remember when we were in the Lahoon Oasis, I was drawing pictures and diagrams of the Brent pyramid and basically showing how it was working, drawing it in the sand. And they were like, look at who you come, you know, like you are the guy, you know? And it was a very, very cool experience. And he was like, I can picture it working in my mind, seeing your drawings in the sand. And of course, you know, whenever you get done, you wipe everything away and you go, you go and it's traveling to Egypt is the most amazing experience that I've ever had. I'm so, so grateful that I've had the opportunity to do it. So I just, I'm just a normal guy who happened to stumble across something that I consider to be pretty amazing. And when you're looking at these things through the perspective of what you've been conditioned to view them as, you're certainly never going to be able to see them as anything otherwise. That also goes into, okay, so let's consider the development of Egyptology in the early 1900s. This is around the beginning of the modern industrial revolution. So big giant machines that are producing chemicals weren't even a thing at that time. So the people that were researching this wouldn't even have the ability to conceive of them being anything other than tubes because chemical manufacturing facilities didn't even exist. So you can't think of these things being something that you don't even have the ability to conceive of, right? So this was being developed in a time where again, late 1800s, early 1900s, where they didn't even have the knowledge at the time. And everybody from our modern day that has attempted to reverse engineer these structures has I've all come up with the exact same conclusions is that form implies function. And they, these structures have been meticulously engineered with functional architecture that was intended to produce, again, changes of temperature and pressure using physics. Like if you reduce the volume of a gas, you can increase its temperature and pressure. And that's exactly what they were doing inside of the Red Pyramid to facilitate chemical reactions using water-insoluble gases and water as your compression mechanism. It's essentially a plunger inside
1: of the Red Pyramid. Wow. Wow. So yeah, man, let's keep it moving. I want to learn more. What's the next slide?
2: Yeah. So the central pyramid, again, the t-shirt that I'm wearing with the alchemical symbol for hydrochloric acid representing the chemical reactions that were occurring inside of the central pyramid, of course, producing hydrochloric acid, another very, very useful acidic chemical, and then. One of my favorite things about the book is the wrap-up of the last chapter, which is in Ireland. So I knew that there was a connection between ancient Ireland and ancient Egypt, and I was super interested in researching New Grange and the Passage Chamber structures of Ireland. And so I'm writing the story, and my conclusion inevitably led me to Ireland. And I knew that to be able to write the end of the book, and to finish everything and to conclude my research, I had to go. So 2017, I went to Egypt, 2018, I went to Ireland so I could write the final chapter of the book and over the last, what took me four years to research everything and write this book. And so long story short, my theory is that the passage chamber structures of Ireland were used to produce a chemical called ferrous sulfate which is a very, very useful chemical, otherwise known as green vitriol within the alchemical circles, and it can be used to render not only sulfuric acid, but also metallic iron, which of course would have been very, very useful to this ancient civilization. And if you look here on this slide, this is the curbstone that is out in front of Newgrange, and there's a series of symbols depicted on this stone and no one has ever interpreted these symbols. Well. This is a rudimentary chemical reaction that is a literal instruction manual for the chemical reaction that was occurring inside of the structure. These symbols down here represent flowing water moving into the structure. This represents air moving into the passage chamber system. This triple, triple spiral symbol represents moist airflow circulating inside the chamber, which produces an oxidation reaction to the marcosite that was inside of here, inevitably transforming it into ferrous sulfate.
1: Wow, which is the diamond shaped squares on the left side of this. Yeah, so
2: on on the left side here, there are three basins inside of this structure. And these three diamond shapes represent those three basins filled with your initial reactant. And here on the right, this is the crystalline transformed product that is being rendered from the process.
1: Okay, wow, all right. And this, this diagram on this stone, you know, probably has some sort, you know, misappropriated spiritual whatever. But when you have the knowledge of, you know, chemistry and you can see these symbols lining up in this series, I mean, really, it couldn't be an accident. Right. I mean, look at that. And I mean, when it comes to this place itself, can we, can you explain like what this structure looks like to the outside observers? Cause this is an audio podcast. So we do have people listening and the pyramids, everyone knows what the pyramids look like, but this is, this is a, a lot different. We have somewhat of a. It kind of reminds me of what we have here in New England. Maybe it's just it's the way the picture show. is. Yeah, like a stone mound. Well, well, that's exactly what it is. And that's,
2: that's part of my theory and the proposition of the timeline of these things is that in the mound builder civilization that inhabited North America, again, that civilization was completely wiped out at the end of the last ice age. These people moved across the sea, started inhabiting all of Europe, africa south america etc and they begin building structures so pyramids are just mounds taken to their pinnacle it is the apogee of the mound builder civilization over thousands
1: of thousands of years these mounds eventually became pyramids okay i see what you're suggesting so north america was the origin and they spread out from north america Correct. Wow okay so
2: for your audio listeners this is a diagram of newgrange right. right which is in ireland and all of these structures are these big giant stone and earth mounds with these long passages that lead into the structure and there's a central vault that opens up when you get into the middle of the mound and it has three chambers flanking that central vault so it's very unusual to go inside newgrange and the the tour guides at the site have absolutely no explanation whatsoever for those symbols, nor do they attempt to provide one. Hmm. And of course, there's some people that suggest it's astrological related. And the most conventional explanation is is just art or quote unquote magic symbols. Hmm. That's another proposition that I make within the book that ancient magic is actually the practice of chemistry. So if you are not initiated into the science of chemistry and you have no idea what chemistry is. If you're watching somebody pour one liquid into another liquid and all of a sudden solid compounds start coming out, a precipitation reaction, or you pour one clear liquid into another clear liquid and it turns black or blue or red, right? The story from the Bible of Jesus transforming water into wine, right? It's chemical reaction.
1: Absolutely.
2: These stories are stories of chemical
1: reactions. and, And when you consider in the modern context, like what we consider like this idea of like the mad scientist in his laboratory, it rhymes perfectly with our imagery and the archetype of the wizard in a laboratory, you know, or an alchemist in a laboratory. It's all the same thing. It's just... You know, a technology advanced enough is indistinguishable from magic to a culture that's, you know, not as advanced as the culture that is creating this technology. So, yeah, man, I'm with you 100 percent. I think with uh, the. Go ahead.
2: I was just going to say that's one of my favorite videos that I've done is the connection between ancient magic, alchemy and the Egyptian pyramids. And it's all. So, again, if you. There's all sorts of fascinating chemical reactions that you can do that to somebody that has no idea what it is,
1: you would be a sorcerer or a wizard. Right. Wow. Now this is really cool for me. I don't know if you checked out my RSS feed, but I used to do a show called the Elemental Philosophorum and the idea of that show was, Hey, there are so many interesting stories out there with, you know, alchemy chemistry and all this, you know, science before it was modern science. So we said, let's just go and take a look at an element one at a time and see what, you know, alchemical information was there along with it. This is perfect timing. Cause this is the last slide in the video. So I'm going to stop sharing. Can you see what I'm screen
2: sharing here? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So. We did, and I I completely missed whatever question you just asked. So ask me that again here in just a second. But we also did an experiment where we tested the geology that was utilized in the construction of the Egyptian pyramids. And in this picture, this is limestone down here at the bottom. This is black basalt. This is red granite, and this is crystalline white calcite here at the top. And this is a reconstruction of something called the Jed pillar. And this machine down here at the bottom produces an electromagnetic energy field. And this is a little preview of what's coming up in the second book. And there are some very interesting effects when you place the stones that were used in the construction of these monuments in proximity to the electromagnetic energy field being generated by this machine. And I believe it's episode 33 on my YouTube channel um, about the results of this experiment wow wow and if you could is that like a shameless plug new merch drop www.thelandofco.com right on i've got some fire new t-shirts on there i'm so excited about these new designs and tons of new colors with the og logo which is the red pyramid with the ammonia molecule inside the structure and then of course books are available on the website limited first edition print copies And I can go ahead and stop this presentation now, and we can just chat for a minute. But the land of Chem, YouTube, Instagram, et cetera, the land of C-H-E-M, again, that play on words with the original name of Egypt.
1: Wow. Yeah, man. Strange, strange, weird stuff for sure. I'm wondering, can we touch on some of those things you covered in uh, episode 33? Let's get into it. I mean, what are some, and you mentioned something else earlier that struck a chord too, is the magical connection to chemistry that was kind of what I was getting around beating around the bush of a question to earlier while you disconnected but yeah I'd love to learn more about that or just hear your thoughts on that subject
2: yeah so when you put the machines or the stones on that machine rather you can get a piece of metal and this is what we do in the experiment and the limestone will produce an electric discharge so there's no electricity coming out of this machine. It's an electromagnetic energy field. However, when you put a piece of copper or any piece of metal or even your finger next to the limestone, it'll shock you. And it produces an electric discharge that comes out of the stone. However, with the granite and basalt, I believe it was the granite, yeah. So the red granite does not discharge at all, which is a little bit counterintuitive because I expected the granite to produce a much stronger electric discharge. However, it's something called electromagnetic impedance. And there's nothing inside of limestone that prevents the flow of the electromagnetic energy from passing through the stone. However, with the granite, the red granite, there is crystalline quartz and metal inside of granite. And the electromagnetic energy gets trapped inside of the stone preventing that discharge into the copper wire, into your finger or whatever it might be. They did that intentionally. And all of the geology that was utilized in the construction of these monuments was selected very intentionally. And it's utilized in different parts of the structure for different reasons.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier about a capstone on the pyramid that connects to your second book. And in that that image, you just showed us of that stone device there there was a white you know, stone at the top. Is this functioning in a s- similar way that the whatever was at the top of the pyramid would function? So that was just kind
2: of how we configured it during the experiment. The white calcite is another very, very unusual material that you find prominently through Egypt. And it's a very crystalline material. And that white calcite doesn't produce a discharge either because all of the energy is getting trapped in the crystalline material
1: i'm wondering the arrangement of the stones in the pyramid they're configured in a way to oscillate this electromagnetic energy through the various layers right so you have one that's conducting one that's kind of buffering but i'm going to assume that the charge smart dude makes it through to the you know the next through the series of levels right what's happening with this you know
2: yeah, so you're 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 on the right track. I'm not going to spoil the secrets quite yet because again, that's that stuff that's within the second book. Okay, um, but it's not specifically related to electricity. There's something else that's going on that they were very very talented engineers. Let me say that. And there's some amazing engineering that went into these structures, and it also goes back into like I was saying, like the ley lines in in Connecticut and the ley lines that connect all of the ancient structures across the planet. So the Egyptian pyramids are sitting on a huge ley line, and that's that's pretty conventionally accepted. And the ley lines are kind of that fringe, you know, type research. But I think it's very, very legitimate. The Earth absolutely has an electromagnetic grid field, and that's not pseudoscience in any way. That's very, very legitimate. That's actually why, for example, the aurora borealis is produced in the Northern hemisphere because of the interaction of electric electromagnetic energy moving into the the planet from the sun.
1: Right.
2: That's interesting. We were just talking to less that. So that, so that research, not, not to cut you off, because I'll totally forget. So when you put the stones on top of that machine, that's the electromagnetic energy field, which mimics the electromagnetic energy field, which could have been produced by the earth at that time. So that's essentially what we're trying to replicate. Is why these structures were placed where they are on the planet? Mm. And what happens when you amplify all of these natural forces? Right.
1: Right. Well, I mean, it's definitely a question that connects to so many areas. Because as you, you laid it out with the ley lines, no pun intended, those are connected to not just the pyramids, but almost every megalithic site to some degree has an arrangement in proximity to other sites so it's clear that whoever built these had a very bird's eye perspective yeah well and and very yeah exactly a total knowledge it seems and uh I wonder is it just because of the long amount of time that's passed that we don't see the same cuz like you you mentioned the pyramids are kind of like the you know the antithesis of this development of this technology through time so they started with the mounds and it evolved into pyramids are there any remnants that are here in North America that would you know show this same correlation to Uh, a chemical process going on and you know are they harder to find because of the sheer amount of time that's passed since
2: yeah so unfortunately in north america i mean you have to imagine that the north american continent was completely covered by an ice sheet right and at the end of the last ice age they proposed that a meteor or a comet struck that ice sheet massive global flooding coming from canada and essentially all of north america would have been completely flooded rooted out that's what graham hancock and randall carlson are proposing caused some of the geological features in north america so if there was any evidence of the connection between these two things other than the mounds that we see which are certainly very similar to the mound structures all across europe there certainly could have been pyramids or proto pyramid type structures in north america you know a lot of that stuff was most likely destroyed and we did a pretty efficient job of kind of eliminating the mounds and all of the other evidence of that culture from all of North America during the manifest destiny process as you're kind of building the w- railroad, expanding the, you know, the modern world out to the west coast. A lot of that stuff would have gotten lost.
1: Yeah. And uh, two things I want to bring up based on things you've just said. So remind me about the aura Borealis, cause we're going to come back to that, but When it comes to New England in particular, given that you're a New Englander, and this is rare for me to be speaking with uh, a fellow New Englander, nonetheless, someone who's as well-versed in this stuff as you are, uh, Freddie Silva, who happens to live up in Maine, was when I was, you know, asking him similar stuff like, hey, what's interesting about New England, he said there used to be a passage mound, very similar to the ones that they have in France, in Maine, somewhere, I think he lives, I don't want to give out his location, but somewhere up in the more northern part of Maine, not too far north, not as quite far north as Bar Harbor, but somewhere in between. And he said it is, you know, similar to the ones in France, and I'm wondering, you know, what is the distinction between these passage mounds and the one found in Newgrange? Is Newgrange a passage mound, or is that a different type of mound?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Newgrange is a, a passage chamber mound, and those things are found all across Ireland and Great Britain and all across of Europe and Spain. And there's also all of these kind of stone pillar-type
1: structures, of course, Stonehenge and, and things that are similar to that. Right on. And then the other question about the aura Borealis. We have a supporter of the show. Shout out to the big tuna up there in the great north. He's a plow driver in Canada. And I don't know what he's doing now that I think he fixes the roads in the summertime, that's what he said. But he was telling me a story about him and his buddies shooting fireworks off up there in the Northern part of Canada. And he said that when he shot off these fireworks and he had some particularly loud fireworks it caused the aura Borealis to be like sparked or something. Like they just started seeing the Northern lights where they weren't before. So I'm wondering with maybe what you know, if you do, if you could lend any of your expertise to that and why that would have occurred when he lit the fireworks off. So
2: correct me if I'm wrong. Anybody who is more academically qualified in this is certainly not my area of expertise. But I know that the, the aurora borealis occurs because of the interaction of the electromagnetic energy and particles in the atmosphere. So if they were setting off fireworks, there would have been smoke or other chemicals probably floating up into the sky and into the atmosphere, which certainly could have led to additional interaction with that electromagnetic energy, causing more lights, et cetera, et cetera. And that's that's most likely why. That's Pretty good explanation, I think.
1: Yeah, thank you. And Tuna definitely had no explanation for it. So that's much better than he could have provided. But yeah, as someone who lives in Connecticut, we don't see that kind of stuff. And it's awesome that we have supporters all the way far up in the North there. So shout out to you, Tuna. You're welcome for helping you with that question. I know he'll listen to this, but anyways. Yeah, man, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Now I'm wondering with the pyramids in Central America, have you looked into whether or not those were used in a similar fashion? Are you planning on doing that at some point in time and and venturing down into Central and South America?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. So God willing, you know, I'll have a long life of traveling across the planet and researching the ancient structures across the globe. And, you know, there's certainly some very interesting stuff in South America and all across Asia and Europe. And so Teotihuacan, for example, people talk about the river of mercury that perhaps once flowed underneath the the Teotihuacan pyramid. And I've never been to see those structures. I have a good friend named Wally who's been investigating all of the structures across South America and looking into these temples and i think they're very very interesting there's certainly a connection and they keep on finding more and more of these things all across south america there was there was an absolutely immense civilization in south america and it is completely covered up by jungle but the more they do all of these lidar scans and investigation they find more and more pyramids and more and more ancient cities and it's really pretty remarkable well the immense size of this civilization people people don't realize how how big south america or the civilization that inhabited it was
1: yeah man and you just got my mind jogged real quick when you you said how it's all under the amazon rainforest you reminded me of the i think it's a portuguese word but preta terra which is like this really rich black soil that they can't explain how it has such high levels of carbon or i don't know exactly what but they think that maybe the Amazon rainforest is like a greenhouse experiment that's gone out of control. Like at some point, yeah. the keepers of the greenhouse left and just, you know, then they came back 100 years later and boom, there's a rainforest. Yeah. Well, I mean, this was an
2: incredibly sophisticated agrarian society. mm So the production of crops and agriculture would have been the predominant focus of this society. And that even relates to my theory about the function of the Egyptian pyramids. It's an industrial agricultural society. I don't want to paint the image of like flying spaceships and all this lost technology kind of stuff. It was an ancient civilization that was utilizing rudimentary techniques to do very, very incredible stuff. But again, the Egyptian pyramids producing fertilizers that would certainly go directly in conjunction with a huge agrarian ancient society and i really think if you really wanted the secrets of the planet desand the sahara wow yeah yeah i've heard find out what's buried underneath the sands of the sahara because i think that's where the stru- the story would get very very interesting because there's been some tremendous Climatic and geological changes in the Saharan region throughout the past, you know, hundred thousand years. So it'd be very interesting to see kind of what's buried underneath the sands of the Sahara. Same thing with the 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 rainforest. You know, what exactly underneath all that stuff?
1: Undoubtedly, yeah. I've I've seen images of circular stone structures in far away parts of the Sahara, seemingly. Uh, far from where we c- would consider the Egyptian civilization kind of being centrally located, but we can imagine that, you know, they were much larger than just what exists along the Nile river, especially considering that it's possible that the desert was not, you know, a natural occurrence. It was some sort of maybe cataclysmic event that turned the place into a desert, or maybe even a man-made experiment gone awry who knows i mean there's a lot of suggestions that whatever people were doing with the pyramids in those times it could have provoked an ancient cataclysm and that's why these structures don't quite function the same way that they do do you believe that or you think it's more of like the earth is just going through a different series of its life cycle and oscillates its you know hurts throughout this very huge, huge
2: lifespan that is the Earth's? That's a very good question. And so my research led me to investigating a very unusual time period in the history of the Sahara. And there's approximately a three to 5,000-year window from about 8,000 BC to around 3,000 BC, where the upper eastern Sahara had significant rainfall. And it was actually a very lush agricultural area all throughout the upper Eastern Sahara. So this is several thousand years after the cataclysm that ended the last ice age, circa 10,000 BC. You have the civilization migrating from North America, inhabiting Egypt, and they're moving towards the Nile river Delta during this time period between 8,000 BC and around five or 6,000 BC. They're building the Egyptian pyramids, there's prolific agriculture, the domestication of cattle, etc. And then right around the time of the beginning of the dynastic Egyptian pyramid, you see the re of the Sahara, which is the Sahara turning back into a desert. There were also a ton of cataclysms around that time. Earthquakes, volcanoes, floods, etc. All of these factors could have led to the Egyptian pyramids becoming inoperational, damaged, brought offline whatever it might be, however you want to phrase it. And then that also coincides with the beginning of the dynastic Egyptian civilization because everybody was moving from this large agricultural area that had been spread out back to the area around the Nile River. And that's exactly what was indicated by the Narmer Palette. the reunification of upper and lower Egypt is when that civilization came back together because of the desiccation of the Sahara. It turned back into a desert They couldn't live out there anymore, so they came back around the Nile River, and that became the dynastic Egyptian civilization starting around 3000 BC, 2500 BC. At that time, they just found these structures, the pyramids, already existing, and they just went in, refurbished them, reconstructed them, and repurposed them for the burials that we see now used by the dynastic Egyptians. And then also, as the dynastic Egyptian civilization grew along, they also started replicating these pyramids and building smaller things that certainly were intended for burials. As you see on the Giza Plateau, there are these three immense pyramids, but they also have much smaller, much simpler satellite pyramids that do not appear to me to have a function and they also don't appear to me to be built during the same time period as the big pyramids themselves. There's a big difference between the engineering, the masonry, the geology, the construction of the big pyramids, and then the smaller ones that don't have sophisticated internal components, et cetera. They're basically just a hole in the ground with a you know, pyramid on top of it.
1: Right. Now, a lot of time is spent discussing the astronomical alignments of these structures and even the mirroring of the Orion's belt in the three major pyramids. Do you think that yeah. this is you know can this be explained that like the pyramids were just multifunctional and that was also part of the culture that created these they just naturally built everything with those sorts of alignments or do you think there was a sort of a uh, higher energetic function to the like alignment like where the sun would be and and where the certain stars would be at night and the moon even like did they take factors into account to add to the functionality of the machine or was this just like you know putting a watch inside of a car right so the egyptian pyramids generally speaking i
2: believe are encyclopedias built into stone They were intended to encapsulate and encode all of the knowledge of this ancient civilization from geometry, mathematics, astronomy and astrology, etc., into structures that would last forever so that if there ever was another cataclysm, people from the future could come back and look at these structures and extract all of that knowledge by studying and measuring and learning about these structures. And that's exactly what I'm attempting to do. So they put indications of physics and chemistry inside of these structures. They were functional. But on the outside, the measurements and the proportions, of, co- of course, all indicate knowledge of sacred geometry, of sophisticated mathematical ratios, et cetera. And then, of, co- of course, there's co- get a connection to astronomy and astrology, where they're mapping the constellations on the Giza Plateau. So there's some very interesting interactions with all of those things. And then, of course, remember that the alchemists were attempting to incorporate the forces of the planets and the natural forces of the world to enhance the production of their chemicals. So they were trying to incorporate lunar cycles and solar cycles and morning dew and all these sorts of things to make their product better. And that certainly could have been a potential impl- implementation of all of those additional things within the Egyptian pyramids.
1: Wow, man. Yeah. And this is, I mean, there are so many angles we can take on this, but we only have so much time here. Um, thank you, brother. This has been so much fun. I mean, not, Oh dude, the, you thank know, you so much for having me on. I hope I didn't ramble
2: too much. No, no, no. I sincerely apologize about the technical difficulties too, but no, 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 can patch it
1: all together into something good. Yeah, no, don't don't worry about that at all. I'll do just fine. But please tell the audience where they can go and check out your videos and, and keep up with your work so they can, you know, learn some of the things that we left out here that's going to be in the second book. And I, of course, would love to have you back on when that second book is out after I've read it, of course, and then we'll, yeah, maybe have a more in-depth conversation on some of the things that we left out here today when they're, you know, less f- fresh, we'll say.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a ton of details. I mean, we're literally just scratching the surface of what these structures are truly capable of. And there's such a big story to be told. And again, that's kind of why I wrote this as a fictional book is because I wanted to paint the bigger picture. And I didn't just wanna write some boring research paper that absolutely nobody would pay attention to because I'm not an academically qualified researcher. You know, I have no reason to write a research paper. So I wrote something that would be fun and that I could also present. So my YouTube channel is just presented or intended rather to present ancillary materials, diagrams, videos, animations. And we have all these amazing animations that have been in the work. I have an animation of the function of the red pyramid an animation of the function of the step pyramid. All of those are on my YouTube channel. So again, it's it's helping to bring the story of what these structures truly were to life. And again, that's why I wrote the book. So yeah, my handle is on Instagram at the land of chem, C-H-E-M. You know, my YouTube website, all the same, thelandofchem.com. YouTube is the land of chem. Dude, this was awesome, Mark. Uh, again, I hope I didn't ramble too much. And I just appreciate you having me on, brother.
1: Yeah, no, that's what you're here for, brother. I like to sit back and, and let you ramble. And I kind of snipe out what I think is, you know, something I can even add to or, or get clarification on and dude, this has been fun. Like I said, definitely a lot of room to be had for a second conversation. And, and I know the audience is going to be really eager to go on Rockfin and see the slides that you sent me. So thank you for helping me there. Cause you know. We got audio listeners and they get the show for free. And if they do watch the video version of the show on Rockfin or on my Patreon, it helps me keep this show going. So shout out to... All of the amazing people who showed up to listen to this episode for Jeffrey, because I know this topic is going to be sought after. People definitely might be finding this episode for uh, my podcast for the first time. So welcome. And to everyone who's already here, you know, help out, folks. Got to keep this show on the road. We got to keep Jeffrey drum doing the research. So go buy his book, check out his YouTube channel, follow, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating while you're at it and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Thoughts on alchemy. Among the alchemists, busy with transmutation of gold from base metals such as copper and lead, gold was highly valued for its unique physical and chemical properties. It symbolized enlightenment and the great attempt of turning base metal into gold, the king of metals. In alchemy, gold was believed to possess the secrets of immortality, and that made it a very precious element. Hence, why Jeffrey might be onto something with this uh, pyramidal energy. Not to mention that the symbol of the pyramid has to do with fire, and you put that flame inside of the pyramid, it almost looks like an oven, right? The word pyre has always uh, meant the word fire. P y r e has always been associated with the word fire. We even have the the words you know, or the letters P H giving you the F sound like F. So you could see the etymology possibly there. Uh, speculating. Of course, we also have uh fear, right? Which is another word. That's very interesting. Fear, fear, right? Germany F U E R. These words all mean fire, uh, in Dutch it's vier, Danish it's fear. So I think Jeffrey is on something, and I have to admit I have not read his book yet. He gave a hell of a presentation, but I don't think he included any of this. So Jeffrey, if you hear this, check it out. So we have Pier, right? Which means fire, and then we have amid, right? Amid means the middle. Uh mid, a middle. So fire in the middle we have a fire in the middle of the pyramid this is an alchemical fire that can transmute lead to gold possibly baking a honey wheat cake in a fire (laughs) figure out what that means folks All right, ladies and gentlemen, and that is the episode with Jeffrey drum and wow, what an interesting conversation a little rocky the connection jumped about uh, Back and forth all over the place At first we had trouble with audio then we had trouble with his internet connection We switched over to the phone and the remainder of the interview went pretty smoothly Uh, I apologize if I missed any rocky spots Uh, You know I can only work with what the guest gives me. And unfortunately, uh, brilliant people, they're spending their resources on traveling to amazing places like Egypt and whatnot. And you gotta cut them some slack, give them a break. You know, I'm sure Jeffrey has a lot going on. So one day he'll get a better microphone or whatever it is that was a problem. This conversation happened so long ago from now when I'm recording this outro that it's hard to remember exactly what it was but I will say Jeff is a cool guy it was a pleasure talking to him a pleasure meeting him he's a fellow CT um, son a <laughs> son of CT son of Connecticut hopefully we'll do an in-person tour with him one day maybe tour some of the ancient sites here in New England as he suggested I would love to do that. I would love to get down to Lancaster County, get down to the Susquehanna River with Mike Wan this summer. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of money. And the more support we get from folks like you, the faster we'll be able to get down there. So if you can spare some change, help me fill my gas tank, help me ensure that we'll be able to eat on our journey south. Into Pennsylvania may or may not happen but I do know for sure that I will be at the dojo of comedy Morris Plains New Jersey on the weekend of the 15th and possibly the 16th I don't think I'll be at the Saturday night show but I will be at the Friday night show Uh, I will be in Morris Plains New Jersey so if you'd like to come see Sam Tripoli perform comedy hit me up on Instagram let me know you'll be there Yeah, got a lot going on this summer. We have the Synchromystic Exploration of the Ever-Expanding Now, the first edition. That's right, the first edition. It is a guidebook now. You can download a PDF copy, or if you wait, you can get a physical copy. And the best way to secure that is to send us a donation, and I will send you the PDF downloadable file as soon as it's finished look forward to that and get in now while it's hot if you if you donate more than five dollars I will make sure that you get access to the PDF after that there will be a price probably be about 15 bucks we'll see but either way I'm excited about it it'll be my first published work Tara is helping me write it her and I are basically encapsulating the essence of of our SynchroMystic Exploration of the Ever-Expanding Now in guidebook form, so you can take it and use it in your life. Whatever you do, whether you want to go on a driving tour, whether you go on a walking tour, bicycle tour, boat tour, if you're in a city, rural area, in a forest, in a suburb, it really doesn't matter where you are, you can engage with the now in a interesting intriguing and reality warping sort of way and this guidebook aims to help you do that that's about it you know you can go check that out when it's ready it'll surely be plastered all over instagram telegram and all the other places so stay in touch with us there support us on patreon and rockfin to access all the bonus content We got a new episode of Illuminati Confirmed coming out very shortly, and a bunch of great episodes coming out real soon. Isaac Weissup, Nick Hinton, Nathan Lee, Miller Foster, who else do we got? We got Danny Katz, Yogi Zorananda joining us again for a third time, Aaron C. from We Talk About Dead People. I'm just giving away all the, the guests that are coming out, and so many more after that, so thank you folks for being here really appreciate you supporting this show like i said a one-time donation does help us keep this show going a monthly donation is incredibly helpful but at the end of the day i appreciate your time and i appreciate your talent if you're a talented person send us some art send us some music we'll use it in the show and of course appreciate your time come on now listening to the show taking time out of your day check out this amazing series set anthology even of episodes none exactly the same all unique in themselves and all featuring yours truly mystic mark and with that i'm signing off have a great moment wherever you are i think i'm fucking peeking right now
0: wait i'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service, can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, my third eye's open and my chakra's flowing All seven channels in my spirits floating knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean it's the eightfold path and the sacred lotus uh, i'm peeking flipping through akashic records my ego's decomposing like a leopard i'm mega casey going some levitation so with zero hesitation as i jump into the spaceship i'm weary from thinking like a earthling while skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling I'm spiraling, sacred geometry, studying my old selves like it's anthropology, honestly, feeling like life's a comedy, as big a game as a paper-run economy, I've been playing safe but safest for the weaker heart. wait, I'm peeking, tearing everything apart, wait, I'm peeking through the curtain, cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit, uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose, wait, Curtain. hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect, uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose, wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies, I lay the rest, the ego, and the frequent themes, that keep me seeing life inside a box, small minds kick rocks, Pandora, less us talk, uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space, I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes, I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite. And every time I'm peeking, I can see it for an instant. I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd. Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl. Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles. Consumerism living in their vacant smiles. Uh. Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky. I ain't even got to try gaining wisdom on the fly. I'm touching base with things I can't explain. Gods without names on a different plane. Wait. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait.